Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. All life wisdom is in fact contained in The Simpsons, right? And Marge Simpson once said, it's true that one person can make a difference, but they usually shouldn't. And that is a thing we need to keep in mind, right? If I have 10 options, and everyone in the world would pick one of those 10, and I pick the other one, I might be right, mm-hmm. but the odds are not in my favor. Yeah. Right? So, and, but if I pick the, the, the one that's the thing that no one else would do, I will have had an impact, but and probably not a good one once in a while. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Gautam, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much for inviting me. This was, uh, this is a, I've been something I've been looking forward to for a while and I'm, I can't wait to get started. Yeah. Likewise, uh, you have a book out called Picking Presidents, which I just finished reading. And even though I'm not particularly interested in politics, the book was fascinating because it, I think was about far more than just how we choose presidents, but how we choose leaders in general. But before we get into all of that, uh, I wanted to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up influencing what you've ended up doing with your life and career? A lot. Uh, so, okay. So my father, is, well, they're both retired now. Um, but my father was an engineer with the, for, with, uh, for most of my life with the government, with the first department of the Navy and the department of energy. Uh, and he focused to the department of energy on, on a sort of working on nuclear waste reprocessing. So sort of building facilities that take care of, say, the nuclear power, the, the waste from building nuclear, nuclear weapons and sort of reprocessing them to make them safe. So that was it. That was what he worked on. And so my mom is a nuclear physicist who spent her entire career consulting for NASA. Um, wow. Yeah. So she um, so she got her Ph.D. in nuclear physics uh, when she was 22. Hmm. A- and uh, do you ever see The Martian? Yeah. Uh, the Matt Damon movie. Yeah. The Matt Damon movie. Yeah. 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 So there's a scene in The Martian where he goes and grabs a space, you know, like a, one old Mars rover and uses the power source to heat his to heat his vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was my, the, my mom's last mission. She helped to design that. Uh, and in fact, we, we flew down to see the launch because that was her last mission. And when, so I remember when she, when she saw the Martian, I got like a five page technical analysis of everything. <laughs> wow. Okay. 
Well, I mean, so many questions come from that alone, right? Uh, I would imagine just based on what I know from your background, where you've been to school, what you've done for work, uh, that the narrative was like a typical Indian kid narrative, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer, failure. Uh, correct me if I'm oh. wrong. Um, but more importantly, like, I mean, your parents have pretty impressive credentials. I wonder, did you ever feel that this there's just incredibly high expectation to live up to? Uh, yeah, like my parents were great about not you know, sort of not pressuring me in such a way. Um, I occasionally joke that that but my psychology makes sense if you realize that I'm like the only member of the Harvard faculty who thinks of themselves as the dumb one in the family. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, but, but, uh, but so what I say is the doctor, lawyer, engineer thing. Well, no, in my case, definitely not lawyer. Uh, doctor, you know, doctor, engineer, physicist was, was definitely the like, you should do one of those three. Uh, yeah. And I started out in the hard sciences, right? I mean, like when, in, when I was in high school and, you know, and I sort of got, when I went to Harvard, the expectation was that I was going to be a you know, physics guy. Um, and I'd always been interested in other things, but I had never, you know, like I did physics research in high school at MIT and things like that. I never like realized that there was another option. So. Um, so my first year, um, the, the head advisor for the physics department at Harvard actually took me aside and said, like, you know, people with your background, they burn out sometimes, right? Like, so I think you should take a year away from this. Go do other stuff that you mm -hmm. seem, that seems curious and that you seem curious and interested in and see what happens. I'm like, sure, that's, you know, that seems like good advice. And so I took a political science course uh, called War and Politics entirely because I looked at the syllabus and the list of books were all books that I had always wanted to read. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, sure, let's do that. Now, what I hadn't anticipated was this was this brutally hard course where the, the first half week, the reading was Thucydides, History of the Peloponnesian War, entire, right? And so this is your freshman year of college. You're like, what did I get myself into? <laughs> uh, but I loved it. And I was like, wait, wait, I get to do, you, you, like, this is an option. I can do this? And I realized what, what it really appealed to me was I am a, one of my colleagues used to say like a pathological level extrovert, right? I, like I need to be around people at all. Mm. Uh, and I loved the, I loved the way you think in physics, the, the taking a complex problem and abstracting until you really understand it. And what mm. political science gave me was the chance to do that in a thing that involved people. Wow. Right. Take complicated problem. And I, I mean, you've read the you've read the book, so you now know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Because this is what yeah. the book is about. And, and and drill out to a sort of an abstract model that tells you something profound and interesting and new about the world. And then mm -hmm. sort of and then ground it in data and history and things like that. And that was just sort of an enormous amount of fun for me. And so then I was at McKinsey for a while. Then I went back to my Ph.D. at, at, at MIT. And yeah. um, then I got recruited to join the Harvard Business School faculty. Uh, right. And I was there for seven years. Because it turns out that when you build sort of an abstract model of the world and you apply it to politics, sometimes it applies to other things, too. Uh, and mm -hmm. the business school was like, I think this is just as much about business as it is about politics. So you should come here for a yeah. while. Um, Absolutely. And, and it was great. And I did. And, and when you say that about my book, you're exactly right. So the book was we can talk about what particularly motivated the book and why I was focused on the presidency. But the yeah. broader intellectual agenda was that the presidency is the greatest laboratory for leadership the world has ever known. Mm -hmm. because we know more about the presidents than we do anyone else. Um, yeah. like put, the, put that in perspective. There are more books about Abraham Lincoln than there are any other person who has ever lived except Jesus. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we get to study the presidency. I'm not saying, you know, like be, leading in the presidency is not the same 
as leading in other situations. But we can yeah. learn about about leadership by looking at the presidency. And that's one of the things that really appealed to me, too. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, you know, one thing that I think is really fascinating is that you had somebody who actually told you to go and explore your curiosity. Um, and I was just talking to a, a friend of um, my parents last night. I was having dinner with her. She's an English professor at community college. And I was telling her, you know, I as an undergrad at Berkeley, I never took classes based on what I was curious about. It was always like, what do I think will get me a job? And that was a huge mistake because I did terrible in all those classes. Um, I, I told her, I was like, I don't think I have one, like maybe I have one memory of a class that I was really enjoying while I was there. Uh, but then, you know, in addition to that, I was talking to my niece the other night. She's a freshman at UCR and she was telling me about the, the classes that she has to take. And she's like, yeah, we have these required uh, classes for graduation. And I was thinking about and, you know, you're in the education system. And anytime I talk to educators, I have tons and tons of questions because I consider myself a failed byproduct of the system. One thing I realized, I was like the whole idea of graduation requirements, like classes that are mandatory seems kind of absurd. And the metaphor that I came up with, I said, listen, can you imagine if you went to a restaurant where you're the one paying to be there and it's your money and the restaurant says, yeah, you can eat here, but only if you order the things that we insist you order. Otherwise, you can't leave the restaurant. Or if you went to Macy's with a thousand dollars and they're like, yeah, you can buy whatever you want as long as you buy this other thing that you can't stand either. Um, so naturally that, that raises a lot of questions about the education system itself because you're pretty enmeshed in it at like what is arguably one of the most elite institutions in the world. Uh, so if you were tasked with redesigning the entire thing from the ground up, what would you change about it? So a lot of things, but the first thing I say is I question the assumption underlying your question. Right. Which is which is a customer service model of education. So there's an old line at Harvard Business School about um, an, uh, an MBA student who was, you know, like demanding something from one of the from one of the sec from one of the faculty assistants. Right. Like and he said, you know, I'm the customer and the customer is always right. And the faculty assistants who, as in any educational institution, are the people who actually run the school. Um, the assistant says back to them, you're not the customer, you're the product. Um, and that is actually something to think about from the perspective of the school. Right. That. When mm -hmm. you are coming, it's true you're paying money, but um, no. but when you're coming there, you're coming like, you know, literally to be educated, right? Mm -hmm. And the assumption there is that there are things that you don't know. And you're at an institution that is about taking, pe you know, taking people who have big things they don't know and teaching them. Um, So I'm not opposed to graduation or to, uh, to distribution requirements because I think institutions and in the case of a lot of these institutions, these are institutions that are hundreds of years old, right? That have sort of spent a lot of time thinking about this kind of ish question have decided yeah. there are things it's really important for people to know, right? There are things that it's really important for people to come out of our, of our institution having a grounding. Um, and so I love autodidacts, right? Like people who are sort of self-educated and who learned about the world because they were just really curious. I think mm -hmm. they are like uniformly the most interesting people you'll ever meet. Um, I, ju I just, you know, I just, I just, I just think they're really great, but yeah. they're often like holes in their knowledge. Right. So, so, so there's someone I know, um, you know, who, who I is, is brilliant and, you know, owns like, owns like 20,000 books, incredibly well read, incredibly knowledgeable about, you know, about, about, you know, and any number of subjects, like routinely ask them for advice about any number of things. And we were watching a Star Trek episode once and I discovered that this person did not know that there's no such thing as, like, as, as artificial breath. Hmm. Right. So like looking at Star Trek, they were like, well, look, I just thought, Spaceships have gravity. And I was like, 
well, how did you know? Like, like, like wait, what? That's a that's a kind of like baseline. This though thing where he goes, no, you hadn't spent much time in college, or you know, like you didn't really care about school. You didn't you didn't get into this thing until you, yeah. the idea that education is really important until later in life. And so you're an autodidact, right? You're incredibly knowledgeable about a lot of things, and there's some surprising. Mm-hmm. And that to me was one. Um, so, so that's a sort of a, a, a latch on, but there are things I would change. And the biggest one I would change is I would, for most subjects, I would kill the lecture. Mm. Like I would, yeah. I would, I would like with a stake through its heart, kill the lecture. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who are such fantastic lecturers that they can make it an incredibly compelling educational experience. Those people do exist. Yeah. But they're not many of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> And the business school that way, you know, where, where I learned to, you know, really learn to teach it, it, it is, is the case method, right? Where m- m- one of my colleagues said, your rule of thumb should be that the, the less you talk, the better your class will be. Yeah. Um, and that was a really good rule of thumb. And that kind of model of, you know, nowadays the, the term for it is the flipped classroom, mm-hmm. um, is I think an infinitely superior educational experience. So having, done both lecturing and case studies. Now, when I have the option, I pick case studies 100% of the time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the thing that I, I appreciated about that, because I, I was a Pepperdine MBA and I kind of just felt like I was going through the motions. But I remember watching a Harvard lecture and I thought, look, this is actually really an interesting way because it forces you to think it's not just about regurgitating, uh, which makes sense as to why Harvard MBAs are so sought after uh, based on that. Um, so, I mean, outside of graduation requirements, there's one thing, you know, that struck me about what you said. And I, I realized, like, I never had that experience where I had somebody say, you know, go explore this thing you're curious about. I don't ever remember being asked what I was interested in learning about. I felt like I was just kind of choosing from the options in front of me. I mean, part of that is also cultural conditioning, right? Like you, I remember when my dad yeah. had, uh, one of our, our uncles over and just, he's asking about his son who was in ninth grade. He was like, does he want to be a doctor, lawyer, or engineer? And it's like, you've limited this kid's options to, you know, his future to three options before he's even finished freshman year. And my uncle's like, ah, all he cares about right now is girls. I'm like, well, that's all he should care about. He's in ninth grade. Um, but you know, that, so that, that makes me wonder, like, why is that not more common? And then, you know, like as far as culture goes, you know, you and I are, are both of Indian descent. Um, did you find that that was your were your parents encouraging about the things that you were very curious about? And uh, if you have siblings, where do you fall in the birth order? And did the uh, advice change based on siblings? So I'm an only child. So no. Siblings. Okay. Um, I would say my parents were not thrilled. When I decided to put it mildly, when I decided to do political science, I occasionally tease them that um, that they did not forgive me for deciding not to be like a quote, quote unquote real scientist until I ended up on the Harvard faculty, which, you know, <laughs> in, in the Baroque status competition that is the Indian American community, my son as a Harvard professor is worth like two billion points. So, yeah. Um, so, that, you know, like then it was OK. Uh, <laughs> but well, uh, try try your son as the host of a podcast uh, <laughs> and an author. Yeah. Who graduated with a C, C average from Berkeley? But, but, you know, author in Berkeley that works that, that works well for you. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so so no, I mean, you know, they were they were not they were not. They, they, no. they, they, I would say they, like partly the same thing that I I did not know political science existed as a profession until I went to college. I think they were like, "What is this?" Right, and that continued for the rest of my career. Then I went to McKinsey, and it turns out that if you try to explain to someone who doesn't already know what McKinsey does, it's really hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, right like it's like wait you you solve problems for businesses like what um uh and so and so 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 i do think there's this cultural it, it's starting to erode right we start to see indian americans who are who have branched out in lots of different ways we see indian you know like indian american actors mm-hmm. uh right um we see um uh i'm i'm, I'm liking I, i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna kill, kill his name kumail um naranji right from yep. 
Yeah, who was who was like on the cover of Men's Fitness, and I was like, I've never hated another person so much in my entire life. Like, like uh, you and other <laughs> apparently so did Trevor Noah. And speaking of Indians in in the media, I, Cal Penn is apparently hosting the Daily Show this week. Yeah. <laughs> so so um so this is this is awesome and like like fantastic. And I, and and as a you know as a member of the community, and and we could actually talk more about that because even when when I got married, my wife is my wife is Swedish. Yeah, I was uh, going to ask so, you about that. I remember seeing that in the book. So yeah. We have uh, we had both a like a, a, a you know like a Western ceremony and an Indian ceremony. Now, the so Indian you, ceremony was we talked about why we did an Indian ceremony yeah. um, at the thing and why it was important to us that we did. Um, but but like okay, so let's let me split out. You brought out several points, and all of them are really cool and really taking a break in curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. So the biggest mistake I have made in my professional career was not taking a year off after high school. Like I can, any time I talk to a high school student who's like about to go to college, I'm like, if there's a way for you to take a year off, take a year off. Mm-hmm. You will benefit from it so much that you cannot even imagine. And they're like, well, you know, the old question is, what should I do? And then the answer is, well, you should do something, you know, like do something like there are lots of options. But if all you do is work at a restaurant, you will still be better. Yeah. Right. Like, like that, the value of that is just in count. Mm-hmm. Um, so first Second is in the curiosity thing. Um, so I am, I am like, I guess basically a pathetic lack of self-discipline. I'm just unable to do stuff that I'm not interested in. Mm. Right. Like, like, it, like you said, you're just, you're bad at it. And I just, I just tune out. I'm sort of, no, sorry. I can't, I, I, I don't care about this. I'm out. Yeah. Um, and, and so that for me was, it was like pursuing my curiosity was less about, you know, sort of, a need to do and then just I didn't have other options like if, if I had tried to force my way through stuff that I care that I didn't care about I would I would it would have been a disaster yeah um and the the lucky thing for me was it was was being put in a position thanks to this person's advice where I had the chance to read hmm. so you know it, it's funny you talk about this idea of not taking a year off after high school because I feel like that's quite common in other cultures but it's not in the United States and I wanted to bring a clip back from an old episode uh, that we did with David Epstein, who wrote the book Range, which I think is very relevant to what you just said. Take a listen. We will underestimate future change at every time point, even when we're very old. But at, at no time is that more true than from about 18 to the late 20s. That's when you undergo mm-hmm. the fastest time of personality yeah. change. And so essentially right at the start of that period, we're telling someone pick now, which which is really asking them to pick for a person they don't yet know, mm-hmm. and, and certainly in a world they can't yet conceive, unless they have a crystal ball that most people don't. And so I think it's a particularly bad time to make ironclad long-term plans, and we should be much more oriented toward pick something, you know, and I'm, I'm stealing this idea from the economist and statistician Robert Miller, is we, we should orient people toward do the thing that's going to give you a high information signal about whether it fits you or not. Given what you you just said about uh, not taking a year off uh, after high school, what do you what do you make of that? And one, how would you convince Indian just to let you take a year off? So first, um, I am such a fan of both David, who was on my podcast, um, and Range, well, both of his books, but Range, that when any of of my wife and my friends have kids, we send them mm-hmm. a copy. Wow, right? So so like 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 could not praise him and the book. Um, yeah. And so what my comment on it is, is, is the, the only thing I say is, and I, I, is when I work with PhD students, this is something I sort of always caution them, right? As I always say that, like, if you ask someone like me, 
was this a good strategy? Is like asking a lottery winner, a lottery winner, is it a good idea to play the lottery? Right? Mm-hmm. There's a selection effect. I adopted this bizarre random path where I did a PhD in political science focused on leadership, which is, which when I did it was considered career suicide. And then did a postdoc in biological engineering and a professorship, you know, a business school. Like, like none of those things make sense, right? Um, and that worked out for me, but it had a lot of risk, mm-hmm. right? It didn't have to work out. So, you know, I think I was a pretty good graduate student. I ended up as, as, as faculty at Harvard. But I, over the course of two years on the job market, applied to something like 80 schools, got three interviews and one offer. And the one offer was from Harvard. (laughs) Suppose Harvard hadn't been hiring that year. This would have been a very bad situation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so there, so the, the re, there are two reasons people do the specialized, well, three, right? So one is it's safe, right? You will not, your ceiling, I genuinely believe is generally not as high as someone who, as, as David talks about, has the, the range to pursue many, many. Mm-hmm. But getting your toehold place can be really hard. Yeah. Right. Second, academic institutions are incredibly centered around special, special, right? For both good and bad reasons. And since so much of your, the, the shaping period of your life is when you're in academic institution, they channel you in ways that are directed that way. Where it's just, you know, it's almost hard to imagine being something other. Yeah. Right. And then the third one is just that being a generalist, you know, is, is, difficult right so so i you know in any given day in my you know when i'm at when i'm and you know i i also work at a venture capital firm right but when i'm in my wearing my academic in any given day i need to be conversant in the literature and like political science organizational behavior you know at least some knowledge of economics psychology three or four other fields you know on any mm-hmm. given day so my colleagues who are political scientists pure players just have to do one yeah, that's very time. It's like it's time consuming just to keep up with all with, you know, just with, oh, that's interesting and, and figure out what that's about at all. So all of that being said, why would I then tell you to do it? one is it's just more interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we all, you know, unless you are a seriously devout Hindu, you only get to do this once. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, like you only get to do this once. You should enjoy yourself while you're doing it. You should, you know, like, like yeah. be, being miserable is just not worth it. Um, yeah. The second is once you leave academia, institutions outside of academia massively reward generalists mm-hmm. because there is no such thing as a pure play specialist outside of it. Mm. So, I, you know, right now I'm a venture capitalist and I, you know, like I look at companies in spaces ranging from biotechnology to advanced maker. Um, and you know, if I didn't have enough of a general background that I could at least speak to people in those fields on, you know, in even terms, I would be helpless. Hmm. Right. So that, so being a generalist is, is just hugely bad. And the third one is, um, almost all interesting ideas now happen at the intersection between fields. Mm -hmm. Right. And there are lots and lots of reasons for that. There are lots of good books about, but the simplest reason is because if you're in the center of a field, you're in a place where everybody else has always been. If yeah. you're at the edge of a field, that you're often in the place where no one else has been, and therefore you might see stuff. You know, you know, you don't actually have to be smarter than everyone else to have a new idea when you're at the edge of a field. If you're at the center of the field, you better be smarter than everyone else to have a new idea. Yeah. And you know, and I would say is you know, 
there are people who are smarter than everyone else, and the odds are you are not one. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, so given that, I think that, that, that how would you convince Indian parents to do that is a question that which I, you know, I wish I could tell answer to my 18 <laughs> year old self. Um, I think the, the first is, I think the culture is more sympathetic than it used to be to it, right? Yeah, like, like, sure. I think the task is just easier. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on the board of a scholarship that gives, uh, that we give scholarships to Indian American students, uh, South Asian students, I should say, coming out of high school, um, who are, who are, you know, are very disadvantaged and who need, yeah. who need help. And mm-hmm. it's striking how much, you know, the other members of the board who were like all born in India, all of whom, you know, like came, you know, like, like have been, they, they've adapted, right? They don't, they don't, they don't need people to be lawyers and doc- you know, doctors and anymore. In fact, that for a while, we actually had a special award for like art students. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So those, the, so part of it is that, um, yeah. the, the other one is when you are in India, that you have to do one of these three professions actually makes sense. Right. Totally. Like India is, is from an American perspective, unimaginable. And focusing on that is really, really important. But when you were, you know, it's like when you were here, you should be here. And the, one of the great advantages of American life is that, you know, the sheer sort of, I think Americans rarely understand just how stratospherically, stratospherically wealthy their country actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, this is one of my favorite statistics because it's so shocking when you hear it. You know, my wife is from Sweden. Um, if Sweden was a United States state, by per capita income, what is the state that would be closest to Sweden? Right? Sweden, an incredibly wealthy country well off, everybody's tall and healthy and loose, right? What's the U.S. state with the per capita income closest to school? I would guess California, but something tells me I'm wrong. Yeah, that, usually people guess California, New York, Connecticut. It's Missouri. Wow. Right? Like, Sweden would be a relatively poor U.S. That's how rich the country is, right? And when we put it, when you sort of frame it in that way, sort of, well, that opens up lots of opportunities to do things that you just shouldn't you know, you don't, there's no reason to play it safe in a country with so many paths to success and so many safety nets if you, if you, if you fail. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that you made some really interesting points about why that makes sense in India, because I really, it took me a long time to recognize that my parents were giving me advice based on the context that they were raised in where their outcomes were binary. It was poverty or security. So risk has some, you know, significant downside. The other thing as I've talked to people on this show who've come from really disadvantaged backgrounds, like I, I thought it was fascinating. You mentioned disadvantaged South Asian kids, because for the most part, I mean, based on how it sounds like you were brought up and how I was brought up, we grew up in fairly privileged circumstances. My dad's a college professor. Like, it's not like we were filthy rich, but we were definitely not in a situation where there's any question as to whether we'd have to go to college or any any of those kinds of things. Y- yes, I mean that, that's that in that in my case that's what I would say is we were we were not rich, but we there was nothing that might have been things I wanted we didn't have, but there was never anything yeah. I needed. Yeah, totally. Well, one more question that has nothing to do with the book, and I promise we'll get to the book. No, no, feel free. Look, uh, I mean, look, 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 I, I've talked about the book enough. If you want to go in different directions, there's no problem. Yeah, no, no, I do <laughs> want to talk about the book because I, I think there's a lot to be to learn there. But um, you mentioned that your wife is Swedish, and this is something I always wonder about people who marry uh, somebody outside of their own race: is how you think about preserving uh, culture and heritage 
because even my, my sister, right, we're from South India. Uh, we speak Telugu. Her husband is Bengali. And, you know, they have this kid. And I keep thinking, I was like, what language is this kid going to speak? And in my mind, I'm like, OK, if I even don't marry an Indian girl, the first thing to go is going to be language, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and so I think I wonder, you know, how you think about preserving culture and heritage. So we do think about it. Um, I, I'll say first is, you know, like, like I, I, I'm a, I am a perpetrator here more than a victim, right? Like my my, my Tamil and it, it is awful and my Hindi is non-existent. So so, so uh, like, well, like, my parents, I don't know about you. My parents refused to teach us Hindi because when they wanted to talk about something that they didn't want us to know about, they spoke in Hindi. I was like, you morons, you could have taught us Hindi, right? You know, you realize that would be a thousand times more useful than Telugu. Like, what the hell can you do with Telugu if you're not in Andhra? Well, my grandfather, who was, of all things, head of research and development for the Indian Army, uh, refused to learn Hindi his entire life on the grounds, he said, and I quote, I refuse to waste my time with a language that has the same word for yesterday and tomorrow. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so, 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 I mean, I, my parents cho- chose to speak only to me in English because my, um, because when I was growing, I did not start speaking until very, very late and mm-hmm. they were absolutely terrified that I was developmentally, uh, developmentally disabled. And they were like, well, maybe we're just making it too hard on him with multiple languages and you just pick one language. Um, and as they said, you know, in retrospect, they deeply regret this mesh this choice because once I started talking, I never stopped, but, um, uh, <laughs> but, but there you go. Um, so circle back to something I said earlier. So our, we had two weddings, right? We had, we had a sort of a traditional, I mean, not traditional, pretty untraditional Western ceremony. And then we had a very traditional Indian ceremony. Um, and so at, at after the Indian ceremony, including, you know, the, 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 the priest who goes rogue and keeps going for about 45 minutes and things like that, which I said was the most Indian thing you could possibly do. Um, uh, I, I, you know, the bride and groom give a little talk and I said, look, you know, why are we doing it this way? And the answer is, you know, the Indian community and American community in the United States, right? We have benefited enormously by, like, Indian Americans are probably, I believe, the wealthiest single ethnic group in the United States, right? Which is astonishing. And so we are, you know, we, we are quite privileged here. But at the same time, um, so, you know, we, we both do podcasts, right? So, so I listen, I listen to podcasts too. There's a podcast in which, you know, somebody's giving interviewing, you know, two people are, one person's being interviewed. The person's being interviewed starts talking about, about, about immigration policy. And the person's being interviewed says, well, you know, like most immigration is bad, but some immigration is useful because it's good for the economy. And the person who is interviewing him says, no, 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 that's wrong. Says one third of the vessel of CEOs in Silicon Valley are Indian American. And however good that is for the economy, it's not worth the cultural damage it does. And then the person he says this to says, well, no, that's a good point. Yeah, you're right. Basically, I'm paraphrasing, but that is, that is. Mm. Now, why do I care about this podcast? Well, the person who is doing the interview is Steve Bannon. And the person who was being interviewed was, of course, Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, and that's a very direct attack on, on the, on the community, right? Like, as I said, you know, I have friends who are the Indian American CEOs of high tech companies. I very briefly was one myself. Um, and, uh, you know, very, very, very briefly. Um, and, um, and like, you know, like it's pretty something for this president of the United States to say that my existence is bad for the country. Yeah. Right. That's significant. And so I think any community has a choice, right? Which is essentially they can, if you're in the United States, you can choose to like, embrace your identity or run from your identity 
And you can say, you know, oh, well, we're, we're, we're like, we are, the, you know, the, 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 the way I almost went is, you know, I'm going to curl up in a ball. Please don't hit me. Or I am proud of who I am. And you're going to accept me. And I'm proud of, you know, and the answer is, I think that for, for, for us, and I think for the community, but certainly for my wife and me is, we were not interested in curling up into a ball. Yeah. Right. That we wanted to say that we are here. We are every bit as American as everyone else. We can be fully, you know, in touch with the cultures of our ancestors, but Swedish or Indian, and still be no less American because of that fact. Mm -hmm. And so that was really powerful for us to say, to, 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 to really important for us to make that statement, even, you know, in the context of our wedding. Yeah. Um, and so for me, when I think about it, my kids can, you know, I don't believe in forcing kids into culture, right? Like, I hope that my kids get interested in Indian culture. I hope that they come knowledgeable. I hope they're, they're, I hope they know more about it than I do. Oh, you know, like, like, I hope they're better about it than I am, right? Yeah. I don't want to force them to do it. Um, my wife would very much like our kids to learn Swedish. That's mm -hmm. fine. I was, I was teaser about it. I'm like, you know, is, this is very valuable for the three people in the world who speak Swedish, but not English. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I said this to her mom and her mom's answer was that three is probably high. Um, but, um, right. But because she, you know, she spends a lot more time in Sweden than I ever have in India. And she wants them to be in touch with that culture. I would like my kids to respect Indian culture. I would like them to understand Indian culture. And if they want to go deeper than that, that would be wonderful. And if they don't, that's okay too. Right. Um, at, at a basic level, I guess I'd say there are a lot of us. Indian culture is not in danger of vanishing yeah. away anytime soon. Uh, yep. And that does make me a little bit more relaxed about it too. Yeah. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Well, let's let's get into the book. Uh, you early on in the book that say a leader's impact cannot be understood without understanding how they got the job. Consider what I call the paradox of leader selection. The more effort you put into picking a leader, the less it matters who you pick. Let's unpack that. The more people think leadership is the more effort that uh, important, the more effort they'll put, put into picking their preferred leader, the path to power will become so rigorous that it filters outliers and the remaining candidates will all resemble one another when a selection process is perfect, then which person it picks doesn't matter. Only the process does. So my immediate reaction to that is our selection process must be a disaster. For, for you mean for, for, for the presidency? Yeah. <laughs> Considering, it, you know, <laughs> what we've seen in the last few years. It, it is highly random. So even if you, if you just sort of back out from just the last few years, about the United, the United States picks what I call unfiltered leaders, people who have not been evaluated by the process mm-hmm. about half the time. That is more, that is a higher frequency than just about any other major country in the world. Yeah. So American presidents matter very often, much more often than, say, British prime ministers or Canadian prime ministers do. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, like that can have advantages. You know, any country that it's moments of three greatest crisis got George Washington, Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt. Right. Um, there's a probably apocryphal quotation by Bismarck that God looks after children's fools in the United States of America. Um, and, you know, you're rolling the dice pretty hard on those. And, 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 and you know, so, somebody's looking out for you. If you get if that's what you get when, when, on those on those three critical moments. Mm-hmm. And in a purely filtered process, one where everybody was thoroughly valued, that's not what would have happened. Yeah. You know, we would have gotten people who were made pretty competent, but we would not have gotten Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. But, and this is the, you know, this is the thing that I, I say, if you only take one thing away from the book, this is the thing is the risks are too high to keep doing. 
right? The fact that you the fact that you played Russian roulette and won does not mean that you should keep playing Russian roulette. It means that you should stop. Yeah. Well, give me examples of unfiltered and filtered presidents, I think, just to frame this for people, because Mm -hmm. you say that if we're picking a president, we should understand that highly filtered and unfiltered presidents are different. Highly filtered presidents will generally be competent, but unexceptional. Unfiltered ones are often remarkable for better or worse. Unfiltered presidents, in other words, are a gamble. Unfortunately, they're generally a bad gamble, which I think you just alluded to. They have a unique impact by doing what others in the same situation would not do. It's just a sad fact of life that there are many more ways to fail than there are to succeed. The easiest way to be a high impact president is to make mistakes that would never have been made by someone else or execute your policies with far less energy or skill than a different president would have. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if this is just me. I, I feel like a lot of people in the United States feel that the actions of the government don't represent the interests of the citizens. Like it's kind of just a giant dick measuring contest. I, I think a lot of people do feel that way. Um, so let's, let's sort of, let's, let's take out there are a few points we could boil out in order. Yeah. So one is in terms of this question of impact, right? Why easier to succeed than fail. So I just say, you know, I say that all life wisdom is in fact contained in the Simpsons, right? And Marge Simpson once said, It's true that one person can make a difference, but they usually shouldn't. And that is a thing we need to keep in mind, right? If I have 10 options and everyone in the world would pick one of those 10 and I pick the other one, I might, I pick a different one. I might be right, Mm -hmm. but the odds are not in my favor. Yeah. Right. So, and, but if I pick the, the, the one that's the thing that no one else would do, I will have had an impact. And probably not a good one once in a while. Yeah. So if you think about, like, give you examples, right? So a filtered president, the, cla- the, the one that the easiest one that springs to mind is George H.W. Bush, right? So the older George Bush. Mm-hmm. So George H.W. Bush had been vice president of the United States, had been a member of Congress. He'd been ambassador to China. He'd been head of the CIA. He'd been chairman of the Republican National Committee. You know, he had been banging around the upper levels of the American political system for forever everyone knew exactly who he was what he and what he was capable of and the elites of the republican party and in fact the elites of the democratic party you know the elites of the republican party looked at that and were strongly in favor of it and the elites of the democratic party looked at that and they were okay with it they were like well he's not our guy but he's not a bad guy right and that idea of filtration that's really important because that when you're talking about someone who literally controls, you know, enough nuclear weapons to end human civilization, mm-hmm. having the people who know the person best and who know the job best say, yeah, this is, you know, this is going to be okay, is a really, really important bar that you want to make sure you get over. Yeah. So that's a filtered president, right? Now, there are plenty of other examples. Bill Clinton, just in modern history, Bill Clinton would be like this as well. Um, the ultimate example, um, the most filtered person in American history, and it is not close, you know, almost twice as much as any of any president before him is Joe Biden, who has been, mm-hmm. you know, was a member of Congress for a member of the Senate for 36 years and then a vice president for eight more on top. of it. That's 44 years. Right. Yeah. Everybody knew who Joe Biden was. Um, An unfiltered leader, on the other hand, is, you know, as you say, is like the opposite of that. So Barack Obama. Right. When Barack Mm -hmm. Obama ran for president, he had been a member of the Senate for about three years. That's just not a lot of time. Right. Mm -hmm. People did not know a lot about him and his capabilities. 
And so he had the ability to surprise us in a way that a George H.W. Bush or a Joe Biden rarely, if ever, actually will. Mm-hmm. The least filtered president of the United States is, of course, Donald Trump, right, who had before yeah. he became president of the United States had spent zero days in government, right? Not afraid about a number of years. He hadn't spent a single day. And so mm-hmm. he was as different from everyone else who has ever been president as it is possible to imagine someone being. And yeah. that had huge consequences. Mm-hmm. So you asked me, so those are examples, right? So unfiltered and filtered. Um, Help me out. What's the next question? So, yeah, let, let's talk yeah. about the personality traits that, that yes. matter here. You talk about this idea of intensifiers, um, charisma, narcissism. I mean, so talk to me. Talk to me about those ideas in the context. Let's just frame it um, so we have something concrete in mm-hmm. the context of uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, because they're the most recent people in memory for most people. So sure. talk to me about these intensifier ideas. So intensifiers are this concept. They're, they're, they're things that make, you know, otherwise ordinary, con- you know, ordinary things big. So what I mean by that is charisma, right? So you are a really charismatic leader. And it's kind of, it's actually quite hard to define charisma when you see it, when you see people who do research on it. And what I, what I say is charisma, I think of charisma as the ability to persuade someone to do something through force of personality that you could not do through rational argument. So I am not a Donald Trump fan. I'm not, I don't hide that. But I would never deny that by that definition, he is one of the most charismatic figures in American history, right? He doesn't have to be appealing to everybody to be charismatic. And when he said, you know, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and everybody would still, and all my supporters would still vote for me. I'm not sure he was, like, I'm not sure he was exaggerating. It genuinely seems that way. That level of hold that he has on people is the definition of a char- of, 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 of charisma that we cannot understate. And what that means is if he, you know, if you have, if you are highly charismatic and you have a good idea, you can carry people along with you and implement, even if someone else could not. But if you're very highly charismatic and you have a bad idea, you can carry some people along with you and implement it, even if someone else couldn't. So charisma is an intensifier. It makes good leaders better and bad leaders worse. It doesn't help you. It doesn't improve your, change your average. It changes, changes your variation. Yeah. Um, now, what mm-hmm, about narcissism ahead. and sociopathy? Yeah. Okay. So narcissism and sociopathy are not, are not right. Intensifiers. They are negative traits, but they are negative traits that help you get through the filters. And the reason for that is if you look at narcissists, right? Nar- the narcissist is someone who thinks that they are like the greatest person in the world, right? They're, they're the most handsome. They're the most, they're the smartest. They're everything. Narcissists are, you know, not when you describe them, they are not appealing characters. But the funny thing about narcissism is that on initial encounter, they are very appealing characters. When you meet a narcissist, you tend to find them to be incredibly charming and and, and incredibly impressive. Um, we, we, we do experiments where we put a bunch of people in a room and ask them to vote on who should be the leader. If they don't know each other, they tend to vote for the most narcissistic person in the room. At some level, it's as if, you know, your self-belief is so great that it kind of convinces other people there must be truth behind it. Um, the problem with that is that narcissists in, are, in fact, catastrophically bad leaders, right? You know, it's not surprising that someone who thinks they are the smartest person who's ever lived in every field and therefore doesn't have to listen to anybody else, right? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. that person's not a good leader. Are you stunned? Um, and, and so over time, you know, if you spend like 10 years with a narcissist, you will penetrate the halo and go like, no, no, this person is awful. I want nothing to do with them. But when you first meet them, they can be really powerful. And so that narcissistic halo in an unfiltered leader can catapult them to the top 
because people say, oh, they're so impressive and take them up. And then it turns out to be a disaster. Um, psychopathy is, is very similar to that. Um, right. Psychopathy is, it's, you know, it's some of the literature is someone without a conscience, but I say is, it's someone who sort of doesn't seem to feel negative affect. Right. Mm-hmm. So they don't feel fear in the same way. They don't feel threatened. Um, you cannot essentially punish a, soci- a psychopath into obeying the rules. Right. Because they don't really care. Right. They don't feel negative affect. The punishment doesn't bother them. Um, and so over a long term, this is catastrophic. Right. Like this, these are people who lie constantly. They manipulate constantly. They, you know, they don't care about anybody but themselves. They're not capable of caring about themselves. Um, but in the short term, they can be incredibly impressive. Yeah. And so that is a very, very dangerous trait in a leader. It's worth noting there, there, there are two types of psychopath and like, there's like fearless dominance and is people who are just, they seem to be very, very brave and sort of almost like the stereotypical, like alpha male type for whatever that's worth. Um, those people are not bad leaders. They're often exceptional leaders. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was the sort of the stereotype of that. And he was an awesome president. It's the ones who are so, sort of socially deviant, who like break rules all the time, lie all the time. That's a, that's a related, but not the same type of thing who are really. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because like I, I have friends who voted for Trump and many of them often for them, it was like, let's just throw a grenade into the system that sucks. Like that was literally their, their logic was, you know, let's just see what happens. Like roll the dice here because mm-hmm. clearly we're just going to get more of the same. Uh, if we have Hillary Clinton is, is what their attitude was. And I, I don't like, I, I can see why people would believe that. And then on, on the flip side of that, and I've mentioned this on the show before, um, I think that, uh, you know, there is a stereotype of Trump voters that the media perpetuates, uh, which is like, you know, horrible, racist, you know, like they just showcase the worst things because that's what media is good at doing is amplifying uh, and basically finding the most extreme things and sensationalizing things. But I remember watching this documentary where this woman went to the most pro-Trump town in North America, uh, which was a some small ranching town in Texas. And I remember watching this family explain why they were voting for Trump. And I like I listened to them. They seemed like perfectly nice people. And they're like, look, if this estate tax goes through, they were ranchers. They're like, we have this ranching land that's been on our family for decades. It's literally our livelihood. It's worth millions of dollars, but it would be worthless to somebody like you or me who doesn't know a damn thing about ranching. They're like, we would lose this land if Hillary Clinton got elected. And I was like, okay, you know what? If your livelihood is under threat, and that's how you vote. I don't think I think I would probably any one of us would be lying if we we said that we wouldn't do that. Um, so I guess in that sense, talk to me about how what does it take to actually improve this process? Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, like I, I feel like in the, when, I, when I, I was just watching Michael Moore's documentary, Where to Invade Next, and I feel like in the United States and I feel like maybe the rest of the world is becoming more like this. But there's just this sort of like almost contention towards political leaders. It's like. I remember watching during the pandemic when they were trying to get um, the next like round of stimulus. And I'm like a bunch of kindergartners could have made decisions faster than this. Uh, and again, I'm not in the same context. Like I've heard that when a president sits down on his first day and gets his first briefing, he's just like, holy shit. Yeah. So so let's start out. So in the particular case of the documentary, right, I have no yeah. doubt that these people like honestly but, you know, I mean, having worked on the Clinton campaign's policy team, I don't think it's true. Right. Like, like, like I have no doubt that they honestly believe that. And they were told that by people who they trust. But yeah. like the family farm exemption on the inheritance task is tax is really high. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, like, like I actually would say empirically, I do not believe that they're that 
I do not believe that their belief was was factually correct, even if, yeah. although it was surely sincerely held. Right. And it's kind of important to make that distinction. Um, and second is it's like it is definitely not true that everyone who voted for Trump was racist. Right. That is not true. Um, I have plenty of friends who also voted for Trump. I, I've, I've spent a lot of my career working with military. A lot of those guys voted for Trump, at least the first time. Many few, the many fewer the second. Um, you know, they're like, like it's, it's just not true. It is true that if you were racist, the odds were very high that you voted for Trump. Mm. Right. You cannot, you cannot understand the Donald Trump phenomena if you do not understand the incredibly important role that race plays in American politics. Right. So, so it like, that distinction is intellectual, is, is like, if you want to understand what happened, it's really important. Um, but how do we make the system better? Right. You have to the, taking, taking all this into account. So there are a few things. One is like some of the people I know who voted for Trump were like, same thing, right? We just, I just want to blow up the system. And my answer to that is always, I don't think you know what a blown up system actually looks like. Right. Like, I mean, I may not phrase it that way, but that's the sentiment that I want to. There are lots of things that are wrong with the American political system, but it hasn't failed, right? We just talked about the fact that compared to Sweden, a very wealthy country, the United States is vastly richer than that, right? 200 years ago, the United States was 13 colonies hanging on the edge of the Atlantic about to be, you know, like on the edge of destruction. And now the United States is the wealthiest and most powerful society in human history. We have lots of problems where you, you know, and believe me, we could spend a lot of time talking about that, Mike, the my, my sort of. Shorthand for that is the United States is about to fall out of the top 50 in life expectancy. Right. Can you imagine that? The wealthiest society in human history is not one of the 50 highest life expectancy countries on earth. Like just unimaginably catastrophic. So it's clear that we have lots of problems, but a system that has blown up is like the United States in 1865, right? Or, or Syria right now or Afghanistan, right? Those are systems that have just failed. And so when we look at the United States and you say, well, I just want to blow up the system. I'm like, you want to change the system. And the band of what American life looks like in terms of success or failure is so small that we think that changes to the system are blowing it up. But that's actually not what they are at all. The president of the United States, in the most basic sense, controls enough nuclear weapons that 30 minutes from now he can end human civilization. That is not hyperbole. That's not an exaggeration. He just has to give the order. Right. That's all it will take. And so when you say, well, I want to blow up the system, that's not necessarily a metaphor. Right. Like, like, like we think, blow up, you know, like, like, no, no, you could literally blow up the system if you have the wrong person in the job. So what we want to do more than anything else is say is you want to, you want to make sure that anything you do doesn't destroy what you've already got. The easiest way to think about this is Tim Cook. Right. So Tim Cook is the CEO of Apple. He has arguably created more value than any other CEO in history. But Tim Cook would not say that Tim Cook defines Apple. Right. Tim Cook would say that Steve Jobs defined it and what it is. And when when Apple was on the point of bankruptcy and about to go under, they they said, we're going to get Steve Jobs because he's the only person who can save us. And, you know, he might bankrupt the company. He has not been successful in the past. You know, his, his, his the company he's currently running has not done well. You know, we're already almost bankrupt. What's our worst case scenario? Our worst case scenario is we go bankrupt. Well, we can't go more than bankrupt. So Steve's, you know, our our worst case scenario and our most likely scenario are the same scenario. So let's gamble. Let's get Steve Jobs. But when Steve Jobs steps down as CEO of Apple, 
he doesn't get another Steve Jobs. Right? At that point, he is running one of the most successful companies in the world. And he says, what I need is someone who I am absolutely confident will continue to do well and will know how to execute and know how to run Apple. So what I need is Tim Cook, a Duke MBA who's worked at a bunch of different companies and has been at Apple for a very long time and is the guy who's sort of made the trains run on time. And if you look at Apple, well, well, Tim Cook has been, has been in charge, clearly that was an incredibly successful decision, right? That was the right choice. And Steve Jobs recognized that Steve Jobs was not, that an, another Steve Jobs was not the right guy in that scenario. So that's the way I, the way I would think of it is we are a country that has a lot of problems, right? But we're not a country that says, well, our worst case scenario and our most likely scenario are the same thing. The worst case scenario for the United States is unimaginable, right? Because it is the end of human civil. That's what you, you, know, you the first, your first priority is you avoid that. So how do we do better? So you said that it, there's evidence that, right, that people say that the American political system is not responsive to the average person. So my first answer is that's true, right? It's just true. There's like, there's empirical data showing essentially that the American political system is enormously responsive to the wealthy and not to anyone else. So that's a big problem. And, you know, but the way we change, there are two ways to change that. One is, you know, one of the ironies of this is the people who talk the most about Right, who talk the most about the populist, you know, like that I want to be populist. I want to do for that. For, I want to help people, right? You know, like I want to stop, break us out from the wealthy elites and sort of get power back to the people. When they get into government, what they do is help the wealthy elites, right? Um, the mm. only major domestic policy initiative of the Trump administration was a gigantic tax cut for the richest people in the United States, right? There were individual Americans who made billions of, do- out of, do- of dollars out of that tax cut. So, this is a problem. So the first thing you do is like, you know, if you're going, if you, there are, there are responsibilities for American citizens and those responsibilities might just be, hey, you know, voting is a, voting is a thing that requires some level of effort on your part. If you really, really care about, they are about, about, about the welfare of, you know, ordinary average Americans, maybe vote for people who also care about. But I, in general, as a political scientist, am pretty skeptical about asking voters to change their like, I, I don't think they do. And I think voters in general do a great job. What you want to do is change the system so that voters will, I will, so that voters will get the outcomes that they really want. And so there are a few I would hear. So again, with my sort of obsession about avoiding the worst case scenario, one of the things I suggest in the book is you should allow party elites to have some voice in who gets to be the, who gets to win, be there. Because we, I don't want them to pick the, I do not want the next president of the United States to be picked by 10 people in a smoky dark room who are picking, you know, someone who will just give them, you know, essentially be corrupt and give them what they want. We have tried that system for, in the United States and we, and we got rid of it because we didn't like it. But we should also allow people who know political elites, right? Who know the guys who are running and the women who are running and have them say, um, this person would be a disaster. I cannot pick anyone, but this person would be a disaster and they must not be president states. If we could just do that, I think we would be much, much, much better. That would be a huge advantage. Um, the second is we could think about like ways to reform the system that would have really powerful effects, right? And it's sort of systemic reforms always matter a lot. So for example, an easy reform that we could do would be ranked choice voting. Right? So you, you know, when, 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 Ralph Nader ran in 2000. He cost 
Al Gore the presidency. I think the empirics on that overwhelm. If you had asked Nader voters, would you rather have, let's, okay, your guy's not going to win. Would you rather have Al Gore or George W. Bush? My, my estimate is something like 70% would have said I'd rather have Al Gore. But they didn't have the option to express that preference. So some states have already started to do this, Maine, most strikingly, where it says, instead of just voting for one person, what you do is rank your choices, right? I want this person first, and if I can't get this person, I want this person second, and this person third. In and of itself, that seems to have a very powerful systemic effect on the way candidates behave and the way outcomes and the, and, and the way, the way policy is framed. And so that could do a lot to make the system more responsive, right? Um, another thing I would love to do, this is my, this, you're getting my pet hobby horse. Uh, so my apologies for this, but you should make the House of Representatives larger, right? The House of Representatives is, is capped right now. At, uh, at 500, th- at 400, at 435 members of Congress, but the population keeps going up. So right now, a single member of Congress represents, you know, a little under a million, 435, you know, 330 million divided by 435. So a little under a million. That's just too many people for any member of Congress to get to know the people on their district on a one-on-one basis. It cannot be done. If you took the, took the House of Representatives and made it three times the size it is currently, you would break, you would, you know, you would make the, make, you would in, um, increase the importance of retail politics where these people would, you know, members of Congress would actually be able to get to know their constituents. And because of that, you would, it would make money a lot less important because it would not be, it would no longer be true that the only way to campaign is on TV. Mm. So that too would have, I think that would have a big systemic impact. There are a lot of th- changes like that you could make that are not blowing up the system. They're just tweaking the system a bit to make it work a lot better. Wow. Um, well, I feel like I could talk to you all day about this because uh, it's a pretty deep rabbit hole. Uh, so in the interest of time, uh, I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Sorry, say, say it again. I lost you there for a second. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable. So uh, now I have to ask, what, what do you mean by unmistakable? Well, I, since I wrote a book called Unmistakable, as you know, mm-hmm. having just written a book, when you write a book with a publisher, you actually have to define your terms. Yeah. Uh, so I define it as uh, something that is so distinctive that nobody could have done it but you, and it's rec- immediately recognized as your own work. Uh, basically, you wouldn't even have to put your name on it. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um, I mean, so the first thing I say is like, this is, right. I mean, this is like, like, like I, I, this, this is what, you know, impact is all about, right? It's something, someone who is unmistakable in your terms is someone who has an impact in their field. Um, so can I tell you a story? Yeah. Have you ever heard of, you ever heard of Judah Folkman? I haven't. Okay. So I got to meet him once, uh, before he died, uh, just, you know, by luck and spent, spent a couple hours with him. Uh, and I, and then had no idea, but then I wrote about, I wrote, I wrote about him in my, in my first book. So, um, so Judah was, uh, was a scientist. He was a, a doctor. Um, he's a professor at Harvard Medical School. So he grows up in Ohio. And he, uh, and he goes to Harvard Medical School at 20. They actually have to change the rules to allow someone that young to go to Harvard Medical School. He's the first graduate of Ohio State ever to go to Harvard Medical School. Um, then he, ta- he, after his second year at the medical school, he takes a year off to do research, which is totally normal. I mean, most Harvard Medical students at the time did that. Um, uh, in his year off to do research, he invented the pacemaker. So that's not normal, right? Um, 
he then goes on. He becomes the chief uh, surgical resident and uh, chief uh, at uh, Mass General Hospital, and then the chief chief of surgery at Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, in the middle of this, he's drafted into the Navy for a while during Vietnam and serves as a, does medical research in Vietnam. Um, and then he's obviously, you know, an astonishingly good surgeon. But what he decides to do is to get into cancer research, right? Because he has this idea. So his idea is he says that maybe, maybe, um, maybe all, all, all of us have tumors in our body, but they're not dangerous until they start growing. And what happens is somehow something changes inside the tumor that causes it, causes capillaries to grow into the tumor and feed it. And that's what allows the tumor to grow. He has that idea. But at the time that he says that he comes up with this idea, um, the received wisdom in the cancer research community was that blood vessels are just dumb tubes, right? That was the phrase. They're just dumb tubes. Nothing interesting happens with blood vessels. And someone who proposes a theory about blood vessels is clearly wrong. And in Folkman's case, um, so he was a surgeon, right? Um, he then the medical slang is he was a cutter. He had zero days of training in cancer research. And I mean, if you're not a doctor, this doesn't make any sense, but it really is true. In the medical world, the, the, the sort of the stereotype of surgeons is that they're kind of the dumb jocks, right? They're not the smart ones. They're, they're, they're the guys who play, play basketball in the, in, in the breaks, not the ones who are reading. I'm not saying that's true, but that's the stereotype. And so this surgeon, this guy who's never spent a day in his life in cancer is proposing this obviously ridiculous theory. And so everyone shoots it down, right? He, he gets, he gets turned down. He gets all of his grant proposals get turned down. He's not able to get any funding for his research. It just goes on and on. Um, it gets to the point where Boston Children's Hospital says to him, you need to stop doing this research because it's embarrassing us, right? Like, well, this hospital can no longer sustain the embarrassment to it, the hit to its reputation that your research is giving us. And so you either need to stop researching cancer or you need to resign as chief of surgery. And he had tenured at the medical school. So he was like, okay, you know, I quit. And he does. Now, you, you can probably guess where this story is going, right? Because it turned, turned out that he was entirely correct. It took 24 years of searching but it turned out that the process of capillary growth, which he termed angiogenesis, he invented that word, was crucial to the formation of tumor, to, to, to the pro cancer process and crucial to the growth of tumors. And in fact, when he died in 2008, 1.2 million patients were being treated with drugs based on his ideas. Okay, so amazing story. Uh, Judah Folkman was unmistakable if anyone has ever been. Um, so, but what, what made him do it? So one is, I mean, Judah Folkman was clearly a genius, right? Like, like, you know, one of those rare people who could just, who just really was, you know, you know, you know, you said this, you know, you, you might be smarter than everyone else, but you're probably not. Well, he was, right? He probably was. He, there was just no question. But beyond that, let me note a few things. One is he had the resolve, right? He had the absolute commitment to be like, I think these ideas are right and I will pursue them even in the face of incredible career-threatening opposition. So that resolve was vital. It was just absolutely crucial. But there are a lot of people with resolve. So what I would say is, I think you're asking me not just how do you do things that no one else would do, but how do you do good things that no one else would do, right? Because that's, that's, that's the, in my, in my, you, you want the high end of variance, not the low one. 
Um, I used to rise as faculty at Harvard Business School, whose whose motto, who's, you know, our mission statement is educating leaders to make a difference in the world. And every year I would say that's an awful motto. But, you know, what we want is educating leaders to make a positive difference in the world. That, that positive word is really important. So the second half and what, you know, what enabled Judah to, I think, and to to do what he did in ways that no one else could is. um, Even though he was incredibly resolved to pursue his idea. He was also incredibly open to having people say, I think you might be wrong. About so he listened. Um, he was he was. The he, he the word the word I want to use is humility, but I don't mean like humility and like you know I don't I don't have fancy cars and I and I and I'm sort of retiring and I I'm always I'm doubting myself. It's, it's the intellectual humility of tell me why I'm wrong, right? Tell me tell me why I'm wrong. Like like actually show me the evidence and persuade me. And if you and if you can show me the evidence, I will change my mind. Um, that was what allowed him to not just to the in combination with the intellect and the you know, the drive was allowed him to, to steer in the right direction, to make sure that he could do the right thing, not just the thing that he believed in. Um, of all the people I know well, the person who's most distinguished by that is uh, Stan McChrystal. Um, the general, he's sort of it's extraordinary, in my opinion, America's greatest living soldier who, you know, led American special forces in, in Iraq and, 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 you know, was the commander of JSOC. Um, and I think more than anyone else I've ever met, Stan goes through life wanting to learn something. Right. Like in every conversation, he wants to learn something. He wants you to tell him, I think you're wrong about this. And I think the right answer is this. And this is why. And he will and nothing will make him happier than that. And that's the opposite the way most people are. Right. Most people. Um, Tom Clancy had this line in one of his novels. Most people most people wed their ideas more faithfully than their spouses. Um, and that is exactly the wrong, to my opinion, more than anything, that is the wrong way to look at the right. Beliefs are hypotheses to be tested. They are not treasures to be sheltered. I'm quoting someone there. I'm blank. I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to remember who the quote, who it is I'm quoting. That's a quote. It's not original. But, um, and so the, I think the people who are unmistakable, right, in the way that you sense it, the, who, who do great things are the ones who combine in a single person this extraordinary resolve, right? The willingness to say, like, even in the face of like, of opposition, of career disaster, of scorn, of everything you can imagine, say, no, I'm going to push through this because it's worth it. and who at the same time are constantly trying to learn about this and every other problem and open to being told, well, you know, OK, maybe the evidence has changed. You know, I'm not going to change my mind because you, a person of authority, tell me I'm wrong. But I will change my mind if you, a person of no authority, provides me the evidence that that is that 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 duality is incredibly Wow. Uh, well, this has been absolutely thought-provoking and insightful, as I imagined it would be. Um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Oh, thank you so much. So uh, both of my books are on Amazon. Uh, the first was Indispensable, When Leaders Really Matter. The second is Picking Presidents. So you can not just Amazon, you can find them anywhere books are sold. I host the podcast World Reimagined with Gotham Makunda for NASDAQ. Uh, we are just about to start our fifth season. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at gmakunda or on my website, www.gothamakunda.com. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.